This morning we're starting a new series called I Spy. I don't know about you, when I was growing up, I used to love those books that you would get. Right? And you would open them up and you'd have on the sidebar certain items that you had to find in the midst of this conglomeration of nonsense that was on the page, right? You had to find a pencil and a ball in the midst of all these different other objects. But I Spy was fun for me. I actually look forward to my son getting involved in that just so I can still have an excuse to start doing them again. And uh, But th- it doesn't just apply really, I Spy doesn't really apply just to these books. There's actually a thing that movie uh, producers and directors do uh, that actually is kind of like I Spy. And they put in their movies these things called Easter eggs. And uh, Easter eggs, as you know, at Easter you find them, you open them up, and there's something neat inside. Well, they put Easter eggs in their movies by subtle references to different uh, other movies or pop culture references or things like that. And if you're not looking for them, you'll miss them. Uh, One of these is A113. If you watch a Pixar movie, and at the stage of life I'm at right now, we watch a lot of them in the Graves household, even when the kids are asleep. But if you watch a Pixar movie, A113 is in every single one of them. It's on a license plate in Toy Story. It's said in The Incredibles as a meeting room for Mr. Incredible to go to. A113 is in every movie. The reason is, is Pixar's very first studio where they produced their first work was Studio A113. And so they've put it and weaved it throughout every single one of those movies. Now, if you didn't know that and you didn't know to look for it, you would think that it's just you wouldn't even notice it. But they planted it in there for the reason. They wanted you to see it and kind of laugh and say, oh, well, there it is. You see, there's times where it's really hard to kind of find something if you're not looking for it. In this series, I Spy, is what's going to take us through Easter, and it's a realization that if we're not looking for Jesus, sometimes uh, he's kind of hard to find. And so part of this series is kind of teaching, and part of it is life application, but one of the ways that it's hard to find Jesus oftentimes for us is the Old Testament. When we go through the Old Testament, oftentimes what do we do? We go to the Old Testament for some character stories. Right? Daniel's in the lion's den, David and Goliath. We go and we find some character stories, make life application in isolation, say this is what we learn from it. If we want life application, where do we go? We usually go to the New Testament. Right? We go to what Jesus says or we go to what one of the apostles say. And so we are able to say, okay, if we want real life application, if we want to see what Jesus is doing, what Jesus wants us to do, we will go to the New Testament. There's, there's something we have to realize this morning. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John continues to say that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, understanding that that means Jesus was the Word. Jesus was the very Word of God. He was the embodiment of Scripture. He was the Word. And Second Peter, Peter says this in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're going to do a little bit of theological math this morning. One plus one equals two. If God, Jesus, is the word of God, and if all scripture is God-breathed, and by that time the scripture they had was the Old Testament, if all of this is God-breathed, that means that Jesus is 
in the Old Testament, and he's working through the Old Testament. In fact, everything in the Old Testament is from Jesus and about Jesus. Now, I know that's hard for some of us because we've read Leviticus, and we've read other things in the Old Testament, and we're like, I, I really don't see how Jesus shows up in this. But you see, we have the proper context. We're living in a time in which we have the New Testament, and we're able to see how things in the Old Testament point towards Jesus. And so one of the goals of this series is to look at that. Different ways the Old Testament points us towards Jesus. Different ways that Jesus shows up in the Old Testament. But there's a second part of this series. Not only are we going to look at the Old Testament, we're going to use the Old Testament to help us learn some things about our life. Because there are certain avenues and certain, certain aspects in our life where oftentimes we find it really hard to find Jesus. Maybe we look at our failures, we look at the world around us, we look at, at, at tragedy and suffering, we look at different things like that, and in, in isolation or in a weak moment, we just look around and we can't find Jesus in this. We don't really understand how he could work and be in these situations because they are so stressful or because they are so bad or whatever. And so what we're going to do is we're going to allow our looking in the Old Testament to show us that Jesus is in those situations as well. And so this morning we're in the book of Hosea and we're going to go through uh, basically the entire book here this morning um, bit by bit. But as we start this series and as we start our, our sermon uh, today, I do want to pray. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to open your word and we pray that you would reveal to us what it is that you would have to say to us that you would show us uh, your will and that you would show us uh, the application that you're calling us to father we thank you for scripture we thank you that it is from you and that we can trust it and we thank you that we have the opportunity to do that together here today it's in jesus name that we pray amen so hosea chapter 1 verse 2 it says, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So can you imagine Hosea's excitement as a prophet that he's finally getting to hear from, from God. He's going to be able to hear from God just like Abraham and Moses and some of the other prophets. And he has seen in his life and he has read about how people who God spoke to got to do great things and say great things. And so you can imagine his excitement when the word of God comes to him. And you can imagine the giant buzzkill when the word of God comes to him and says, here's what you're to do. You're going to go and marry a promiscuous woman. Moses got to set the Israelites free. Hosea gets to go marry a promiscuous woman. This probably was not in his plans. But God's going to use this for, obviously, for a reason. He tells him to go and, and marry this woman. Now, notice he doesn't say go marry a woman who used to do this. He says go marry a woman who is currently doing this currently going around, currently selling herself, currently uncommitted to any man, living wildly, go marry that type of woman. And we see why God says this, this is just like Israel. 
I've pledged myself to Israel, yet Israel continues, even though they're the people of God, <coughs> excuse me, they continue to backstab me. They continue to follow other gods. They continue to do whatever they want to do. And I'm going to let you live this out. <coughs> excuse me. I'm going to let you live this out. I'm going to make you live this out so that you understand kind of how I feel and so that you can adequately express this to others. God is hurt by sin. God is hurt that the people that he has called to be his people are sinning. Not only that, they're sinning and they're unrepentant. They don't even care that they're hurting God. They don't even care of who they're supposed to be. They only care about what they want. And so this is the state of Israel. And yet, one chapter later, we see a brand new aspect of this. God does lay out what Israel is doing, but then we see in Hosea chapter 2, in verse 16, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, you will no longer call me my master. <coughs> I'm sorry. God says there's going to be this day where this relationship's going to change. We're going to have a deep, connected relationship. You're not going to call me someone who just lords over you. You're going to call me somebody who is, who is your husband. You're going to call me someone who is you're in love with. He continues in verse 19. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain the new wine and the olive oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one uh, I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And so we go from Hosea, this is what you're supposed to do, to God painting this picture of a perfect relationship. And what we've done over the last four weeks is kind of talked about this reality. We, we talked about in our party invitation series about the fact that there is a wedding feast in Revelation, which God has made all things new. You see God in verse 21, 22 talks about, he says, the earth is going to work the way it's supposed to, and the relationship that we have, with, or I have with you, is going to work the way it's supposed to as well. And so the reality of our situation is that we're somewhere in between this. We are somewhere in between the fact that sin entered the world, and that there's no more sin. We're between the time when God's heart was broken and the time that God's heart's going to be full. And we are living in the middle of this. <coughs> and the people of Israel are living in the middle of this. God says there's going to be this day of perfect reconciliation. And you and I today, we live in hope for that day. And yet we, like Israel, make the decisions that are listed out throughout this book. There's a lot of chapters, a lot of um, times that God just shows what Israel's doing, but a quick summary of those in, this, in Hosea 4, starting in verse 1. It says, There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all, all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. God says, This is, this is you. You don't even acknowledge who I am. My, my name is not even on your lips. Instead, you cuss and you lie and you murder, you steal. You're not trustworthy. You break any bounds that you have together. And your solution 
for fixing these things is to cause more bloodshed. Now, these are the people of God that he's talking to. People who should know better. And I think you and I, living today, we live in a world that is unfortunately described to a T here. We live in a world where there's no acknowledgement of God, and we see cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery and untrustworthiness, and we see violence upon violence upon violence. And so we are familiar with the atmosphere that God is describing here. But we also have to realize that, once again, he's talking to God's people. And so, unfortunately for us, we have to have the realization that even within the church, this is a reality. There are a lot of people in church who do these things. In fact, we all do, in some way, shape, or form, something because we're sinners. Because we mess up, we disobey God. But it's not just the normal people who are doing this. Hosea 4, 5, he says, You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you, rejecting knowledge and worshiping idols. God says, listen, it's not just the common people who are messing up. Your leaders are messing up too. In other words, all of you are guilty. All of you are guilty of breaking this relationship that we're supposed to be having. And the truth is that today, that's the truth for all of us, even the leaders. We mess up, we fall short, we chase after our own glory instead of God's, and yet God wants to do something about it. What God does is he lays out the charges against Israel throughout Hosea, and he says, this is what you're guilty of, and in fact, this is what your sins deserve. Dave, thanks for the assist this morning on your communion meditation. And so the question is, where is Jesus in all of this? We see it in Hosea 3. Hosea says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave in the same way towards you. God says, you are going to go. Even though, Hosea, you are in the right. You have not done anything to mess this up. You are in the right, yet you are going to go because your wife is living with another man. And you are going to go and get her back. And when he goes to get her back, he has to pay a slave's ransom for someone who he should not have to do that because they're married. But he pays a slave's ransom to get her back. And when he gets her back, he says, this is the reality now. I have purchased you. I want you to be faithful to me. And we see that that's the goal of God. And God's goal is that after he brings his people back, they have a, a repentant heart. Hosea 14, verse 1 through 4, says, Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruits of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. In other words, another country, another, another kingdom can't save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. 
And God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. And so Hosea is charged with living out what God is going to do. And I know that there are certain points in the Old Testament where it might be a little bit harder to connect the dots, but we see here that God has Jesus in mind. Because let's be honest, what sin has done to us is that we are living at the house of another God. We have chosen other things time after time again. Even those who, have been per- who, who know that we have a relationship with God, even those who say that they believe in Jesus end up going to the house of another God. This is unfortunately the reality of the entire world. And yet, God sends Jesus. Hosea paid a price for Gomer so that she could come back and have a restored relationship with him. And we know that God pays the price through Jesus so that we can have the same relationship that we were always meant to have with him. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, you didn't have it figured out when mercy came calling. You didn't figure everything out. You didn't have all the right answers. You still struggled with sin. And yet, at that point, Jesus still came. Jesus didn't wait for the goodness meter of the earth to get to a certain point and says, okay, now I'm going to come while we were still sinners. In other words, while Gomer was still married, while she was still cheating on her husbands, while we were at another God's house, God came to buy us back. And so we have to realize this morning that we are not forgiven because we earn it. We are forgiven because God's willing to give forgiveness. We are not forgiven because we have done enough good. We have gone to church enough times. We have tithed enough money. We are not good enough to earn this. We are still at another God's house until we realize that Jesus has come and paid the price. And we hear him say, don't leave again and we repent and we come back see the line here is pretty clear how this this correlates with Jesus Jesus is the Hosea figure he is the one who goes and buys us back the question is what about the rest of the Old Testament how does this this work well, 1 Peter 1.18, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Peter says, you were not bought like Gomer with perishable things, with money. You were bought for, you were bought, you were paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood is what unites you to God and allows you to believe in God. But notice what he says. He says, he, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world. Before God, before, in the beginning, God had Jesus in mind. Why? Ephesians 1, verses 
4 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And so we're going to do theological math again this morning. Before the world was created, God said he wanted a relationship with his creation and that he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. Before he ever created, God said, I am going to have a relationship, and even if that means making a sacrifice of my own, I will do it. And so how we see Jesus in the Old Testament all of a sudden appears because every time there is grace shown, it's because God always had Jesus in mind. In Eden, when Adam and Eve decided to sin and covered themselves with fig leaves, God sacrificed an animal to make clothes so that Adam and Eve would know that they weren't forgiven and covered by grace because of their effort, but by his effort. He wanted them to know, because, and he did this because he knew that one day there was a perfect lamb who would come and do the same for us. God started over with Noah's family and flooded the earth to cleanse it because we would one day be able to be cleansed underneath water and come to a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. When the Israelites sinned and snakes infested the area and they were bitten by poisonous snakes, it was told to Moses to lift up a stick with a snake on it for Israelites to be healed from the repercussions of their sins. And it's done so because God knew that one day his son would be lifted up on a tree so that when we run to him and see him, we could be cured from our sin. David was the king after God's own heart, but when he messed up and he asked for mercy, he was granted mercy because God knew that the true king would come one day and take his throne. And this means that all along, Hosea would have to wed a promiscuous woman, would have to pay for her to be his again, because God would do the very same thing by giving his son's life for the people that he wanted to spend eternity with. You see, God and Jesus is everywhere through the Old Testament. Because God always had in mind what Jesus would do to bring us back. And so, the life application part of this. If God knew all of this, and God knew that he was going to do it, what does that mean for our failures? Because there's too many of us who go around and see our failures as what defines we say things that if God only knew how much I did, he wouldn't love me. He wouldn't forgive me. We identify ourselves based on things that we did 25 years ago. Because our failure seems like a mountain that's right in front of us and it's all that we can see. I think the fact that God had all this planned should reiterate something to us this morning. If it was always God's plan to cover your sins with the blood of his son. And so if God was going to give up on you, he would not have created you. If God was going to say, oh, there is a certain level of sin, and once they reach that, there's no hope for them. If that was God, he would have never created you. God created you for a relationship with him. If your sins were going to be too big for him, he wouldn't have created you into being. He created you and he gave you life because he knew that the cross is bigger than your mistakes. 
The cross is bigger than anything that you have done. Where we see Jesus in our failures is the fact that if we see our failures as a giant mountain, the cross is still big enough to be planted on top of it, and the blood of Jesus can pour from that cross and cover all of them. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who sent his son to die for us. And there is no amount of sin and there is no amount of running that could ever cause us to be too far from the shadow of the cross. Now the Bible is clear that we shouldn't continue to sin if we've received forgiveness, but the reality of the situation is because we live in a broken world, we're going to continue. That doesn't mean that we don't strive for it. Jesus said to be perfect as our Father is perfect. But it does mean that even when we stumble, those stumbles do not define us. The cross of Jesus defines us. And just as Hosea paid to have his wife back, God paid the price for us to be defined by his grace rather than our failures. This morning, your failures don't have to define you. Your mistakes don't have to be your banner. We raise the banner of Jesus Christ, who so loved the world that he came and he died so that no matter what, he could reach us. And so this morning, I hope and I pray that today you leave this place knowing that God wants to have a relationship with you and that God wants to have this relationship with you forever and that God has done what is necessary for that to happen. The question is whether you will accept his invitation to be underneath the grace of the cross. That you say that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And for those of you here today who maybe you've, you've done that before, but you're still living in another God's home, Remember that you have been set free and that you have been purchased and Jesus wants you to come home. And so this morning, if you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace and we thank you for forgiveness. We thank you that you show us through the Bible that you always wanted a relationship with us, that you always desired to be with us, and so you always had in mind that you were sending Jesus. And you showed us throughout the Old Testament times and ways that you were pointing towards that. And so here today, Father, we pray that we would not look at our failures as something that's insurmountable, but something that you have conquered and something that you have forgiven and something that you want to take care of. Father, you want us to be known as your sons and your daughters, not as failures. We want to be known as what you've done and not what sin has done to us. And so, Father, I pray that today we would do that. That we would be obedient to you. That we would come home. And we would realize that you purchased us for a relationship with you. We love you, God, and we thank you for the joy that we will share in a perfect relationship with you. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision to make this morning, we invite you.